Let's go to the Lord. Lord, we once again come before you. Lord, we cannot uh, worship. We cannot hear. We cannot read. We cannot embrace the truth without a working of your spirit. So I ask for you to come. Lord, come and speak to us through your holy word now. Father, plant it deep within our hearts. Lord, renew us. Help us to see the glory of your Son. Lord, I pray that we will embrace the truth, that we will follow the truth, and we will forever look to the truth. Father, as you do it for us, Lord, we pray that you do it all around the world. Father, today we pray for the such Sawian people in Azerbaijan, 250,000 people who are trapped in Islam. Lord, a people who need to hear this truth, a people who have embraced falsehoods and who pray to a false god. Lord, we pray that you will call missionaries and send them to these people. Well, they will hear the truth of Jesus Christ. They will embrace the gospel and they will have peace and enjoy their Savior. Lord, we pray that you will plant churches among these people and raise up, call brothers to preach your word, to proclaim the truth. Father, I pray that you will save them to the glory of your name. Father, we also pray for Colin Rieger, Grace Buchanan Church, his family, and the people who you've gathered in that new local body in West Virginia. We pray that you will establish their ministry that you will help them to go deep into people's lives and they will connect in personal ways, Father. Relationships will be formed that will last for years and generations. And through your grace, you will save many through that church, Father. Lord, we pray for the IMB, the International Mission Board of the SBC. We pray that they will be some of the people you send to the Satsawian people, Lord, and among the others. We pray for those who have already been sent, those who have been called and they have heard, they have obeyed, and they are now serving in a foreign land to a foreign people, and they see every day the lostness. Lord, I pray that you will encourage them, that you will give them the grace and the peace to keep enduring. Father, that they will persevere. Father, I pray that as you do it with them, you do it for other churches here in King George County. Lord, may we see the lostness that's all around us, Lord, and not only in our church here, but I pray for all the churches in our county that they will preach your word, that the gospel will be heard, Jesus will be loved, sin will be forgiven, and new lives will be lived. To the glory of your name, Father, I pray that you will give us a boldness to share the good news, especially here in the Dahlgren area where you have planted us. Lord, I pray that we will see those around us. We will connect with people. We will step outside of our normal paths so that the good news of Jesus will be heard. Father, as we come before you through your word, I pray that we will see this truth. Speak to us now. It's in your name. Amen. The text for this morning is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. I invite you to please turn there with me in your Bibles. It's page 660 in the church Bible. Raise your hand if you need a copy and we'll get one to you. 
And if you don't already own a Bible, please keep it as our gift to you so you can read God's Word on your own. And please stand now as I read in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Please be seated. God, I ask in your mercy that you open our eyes and fill our hearts today. Cause your grace to awaken our souls to this truth and to the glory of Jesus. Today we've come to the final part in our Advent series, The Promise. We are looking this morning at the promised gift, the gift of Christmas. This whole series is intended to prepare us for Christmas Day. Tomorrow morning when we wake up and we celebrate Christmas, the first thought we ought to have is that it's a gift to us. It's not just a date on a calendar. It's not a holiday that we established. Christmas tells us that God has given a priceless, glorious gift that overcomes the problem of sin that every single person here has. It's a gift that brings life where there's death. It's a gift that provides peace and stops rebellion. It's a gift that replaces despair with hope and joy. It's a gift that atones and removes sin from sinners and transforms these sinners into holy people. The problem that you and I have is that we are all sinners separated from God. Since the fall of man, there is separation between you and God. You are alienated from Him. You cannot be with Him. You and I are unrighteous, undeserving, and incapable of entering God's presence. Our best efforts fall far short. The closest you and I can get is the senseless efforts of every false religion. Those who are trapped in man-made religion work in vain, never getting the slightest inch closer to God. Even non-religious people, in all their charity and their kindness, can never be good enough to be with God. You and I, every person listening, every person alive or dead, cannot stand in the throne room of God on our own any more than a stone can pick itself up 
and move. God says that you are sinful. You are born with a corrupt nature. It is impossible to be born into sin and enter into the presence of a holy, righteous God. It's like trying to ride a bicycle to the moon. Every effort of ours is pointless, and it ends in utter failure. This is the reality that you and I face. This is the reality of the world. No matter how good any of us are in this life, our sin has tainted us. It's a scar that we bear. No matter how much we try to cover up this scar, it's still there. All would seem hopeless for sinners like you and me if it weren't for God's promised gift. Christmas tells us that this problem that you and I have that is insurmountable by any effort of ours is miraculously and lovingly overcome by the baby born in Bethlehem who grew up who lived a life of perfect obedience to God and died a sinner's death. Because this was no ordinary man. It was God Himself in the flesh. He died in the flesh and rose again and overcame sin and death for all who believe in Him. This man, Jesus Christ, was promised Thousands of years before he came. He is the promised good news. He is God's promise to us in the Garden of Eden. He is the seed that crushed the devil's power over God's people. He's the long-awaited Messiah who came to save the lost. He has delivered them from their sin and he's brought them into everlasting life. He keeps them, and He loves them. He's the promised King who reigns forever. When Jesus came, He ushered in the kingdom of God to rule in our hearts and His creation forever. Jesus, the incarnation of God Himself, came to do what we are incapable of doing so that those who believe will be accepted by God. God has done what no man can do or will do. To be acceptable to the perfect, holy, righteous, good God, you must present yourself perfect with never ceasing obedience to His will. None of us are capable or willing to live a life in complete surrender to the will of God. But Jesus willingly did this. Jesus, the begotten Son of God, was conceived in a virgin by the Holy Spirit and lived a sinless life. The only one to ever do so. He never had an impure thought. He never disobeyed God's law. He never wronged anybody. He always is good and righteous and loving and kind and humble. He's everything good. He defines selflessness. Scripture calls him the new Adam. 
He lived his earthly life perfectly. And he did so on behalf of sinners like you and me. He fulfilled what you and I can't. God is gracious and He's kind to sinners for His Son to come. But for God to be righteous, He must deal with your sin. This He also has done in Christ Jesus if you believe in Him. Jesus perfectly lived out the holy law and then perfectly paid the penalty for sin for all who confess and believe in Him. Only Jesus, God in the flesh, only Jesus could live, die, and rise victorious over death after paying the penalty for sin. The gift of Christmas is God's grace given through Jesus to sinners who are not able to live holy, pleasing lives. God gives us new hearts to embrace His grace in Jesus, to love His mercy, and to worship Him because of Christ. Sinners are now safe in Jesus. We are loved as sons and daughters. We are accepted, we're welcomed, and we're protected. Christ provides this for all of His people The incarnation is God's means to make all of this happen. And Christmas is the celebration of that incarnation that made it all possible. God coming in the flesh to accomplish the justice and the grace and the love and the peace that is completely out of our grasp. The gospel is what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Christmas says to you that God fulfills His promise even though you can't. This has been the issue all throughout history. Christmas is not just a New Testament story. It's not just something we celebrate today. It began in the Garden of Eden. And then for thousands of years, it was foretold through the covenants. With each covenant, each renewed promise, God would tell a little more about it. Each covenant providing more detail and a fuller description of what God would do for His people. In Jeremiah, God tells of a new covenant bond with His people. And He spoke of such blessing to them. But he also spoke of how they could not keep the covenants. Even though they broke it time and time again, they were disobedient and faithful. God promises a new covenant relationship with them. In Jeremiah 31, God promises this new relationship between him and his people. God makes the promise in verse 31. He gives the reason for it in verse 32. He describes it in verse 33. And in verse 34, God says who it's for. This promise of the new relationship will be different than what God's people have experienced in the past. God lays out new terms for this new covenant. And the greatest aspect of this new covenant promise 
is the way God displays His glory in it. While the old covenant could be broken, God's people did it many times, he says. This new covenant is unbreakable. There's no possibility of cracking it. There's no possibility of it being destroyed. It will last forever, God says. Another amazing part of this new covenant is when it was given. At this time in Jeremiah, God's people are exiles, taken from the promised land. The northern kingdom Israel has already fallen. The southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. It is a horrible time for God's people. It was a low point. God's promise seemed like a distant memory. There was turmoil. Everything they knew and understood life to be was flipped on its head. They were living in a culture of desperation with different ideas and religions and different explanations were swirling around all about them, much like it is today. There's competing thoughts and visions for your life today, different beliefs. There's identity crises. Varying agendas are all about you. In all of this, God's people are told that we are not home. We are sojourners. Where you live today is not your ultimate home. It's temporary. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a foreigner in this land. There's reason why nothing in this world fills the deepest longings in your heart. You were not made for this world. It traps you. It leaves you wanting more. You're always felt kind of empty with the things in this world. And it was the same for God's people in Jeremiah's day. To his people who are exiles, God says in verse 31, The days are coming, declares the Lord. There's a future that will come that will be of my doing, God says. It will happen because God has said it. Do you see the hope in the very beginning of our passage? To people who are in exile, they're not at home, God declares a new future for them. He says He will establish a new relationship with them. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It is completely new. The verb here, he will make it, means God will bring the relationship into existence. The same God who spoke the world into existence, who brought it into being, will make a new relationship with his people. What does not exist now, God promises to do it. While there's something brand new here, There is an element of continuance from the previous covenants. The relationship will be completely new. That's the new. It's based on new terms. But who's making the covenant and who he's making it with are the same. God is the one making the covenant and his people are the ones who receive it. God and his people in a new covenant of God's doing. 
In verse 32, God says why he will establish a new covenant. This new relationship will not be like the previous covenant where his people broke it. Speaking to the time when God brought his people out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, Exodus tells us, he says, he took them by the hand. God cared for them and his tenderness was displayed to his people. He sustained them, he kept them, he provided for them, he protected them. And even though he was faithful, he was like a husband to a wife, God's people were unfaithful. They doubted him, they ignored him, they looked for pleasure and purpose in other gods. And what God has in mind here with the new covenant is not a repeat of this. It's not a renewal based on the same terms. God's people continuously broke those old terms. They could not keep it. At times they would be sincere and they would commit, but they always had a stopping point. There was always that limit where they would go and then they would stop and they would not fulfill the covenant. At times, they would commit, but there was a limit to their love and to their obedience. There are times when you and I, when we're given a real sense of how far we have fallen, the wickedness in our heart is revealed, and we turn to God and we commit But then we break our commitment. We lose sight and forget his care and his tenderness towards us. We are in the same boat. We cannot fulfill those covenant terms that were laid out. This promise in Jeremiah is not based on how well God's people fulfill their end of it. God says this promise is not based on you at all. It's based solely on what God does. God's promise is grounded in God's faithfulness. This is the gift of the new covenant. God makes a covenant with his people that he will keep. He will bring it about. He will establish it and he will keep it. The relationship is rooted in God's unchanging character. It's in his mercy and his love and his sovereign power to keep it going. God says the bond between him and his people will be established according to who he is. Now, if you were standing on the edge of a mountain and you had the option of throwing a rope to get to the other side or to walk across on a footbridge that was made by tempered steel and had been tested and proven to last, which would you choose? Would you choose the rope or would you choose that solid footbridge? God, in essence, is telling his people, my relationship with you will not depend on the accuracy of your throw or how long your rope is. I have made a way for you to cross and it will not fail. 
No wind or storm or any kind of disaster can keep you from coming to me. I have made sure that you will be safe. I will make it so. And I will bring you to myself. God then describes what he will do in verse 33. Please look with me. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The great covenant summary of the new covenant is I will be your God and you will be my people. The house of Israel here refers not to the northern kingdom but to the house of God, to the people of God. God's promise goes beyond a geographic landscape. People in Jeremiah's day would have looked to a new day beyond the exile. They would have seen God's promise to restore them. But God was talking about more than a return to a national way of life. Just like today, our hope is not in a political party or a return to a way of life. Now, God eventually returned his people to the land, but it was to stage, it was to set up Christ's coming. It was a fulfillment of the ushering in of God's kingdom. Also note here, there's nothing mentioned in this promise about any human action. No merits to achieve. God's people do not have to work their way to God. God sovereignly acts to transform the character of His people. God will give an internal desire to obey and to love Him. God will put His law within them. He'll write it on their hearts. This is how God will secure loyalty and obedience from His people. What they are incapable of doing, what you and I are incapable of doing... God will do it. There will be a change of their heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26, we're told of what kind of heart. Please turn there with me. It's page 724 in the church Bible. God says it will be a new heart and a new spirit in His people. In Ezekiel 36, 26, God tells the prophet Ezekiel, what he should say to God's people of a future when God will gather them to himself. He says in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A new heart with new desires, new affections, a new love for God. God's spirit will cause his people to walk in his ways, to obey his law. This new heart leads to a new love for God, a new desire to submit to his rule. He will rule in the hearts by giving new desires and longings in them. He opens their hearts to truth. Everybody, everybody here, everybody in the world, everybody seeks truth. 
You live what you believe to be true. God puts His truth in His people to love His ways and to desire Him more than anything else. God is your treasure in this life and you live it, you show it, and you worship Him for it in His holiness. What a glorious promise. And it's all of God's doing. He has established the terms. He's the one that said, this is going to be a new relationship. None of you can do it, but I will do it for you. But the prophecy doesn't tell us how. Did you recognize that? God does not tell us how He will establish this new covenant. How will He cause people who love sin and who essentially hate Him to now live with profound affection for Him? How will He put these new hearts into them? How will it all take place? The Hebrews writer connects the promise in Jeremiah with its fulfillment. The exposition of Jeremiah 31 is found in Hebrews chapters 8 and 9. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. It's page 1000 verse 5 in the church Bible. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the one who accomplishes the impossible. God God's people are given new hearts through Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who's God's grace in the flesh. Hebrews 8 verse 6 says this, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. You see, the law of God remains the standard. It was the standard in Jeremiah's day, and it's the standard today. The law of God must be fulfilled. The fact that you and I cannot live it out does not remove the requirement to live up to God's holy law. God's law says you must be holy, perfect, and pure to be with God. And none of us in this room, no one listening, can be with God. None of us. But Christ is. Jesus fulfills this. In Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 15, we're told that Jesus' blood is the means to secure this eternal redemption for God's people. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. We see that in chapter 8. He's the one who is there on the behalf of God's people saying, God, Father, I have accomplished what these people cannot. He stands as the mediator. And then his blood washes away his people's sins. In this passage in chapter 9, Jesus is being compared to the priests in the Old Testament and the worship that occurred that's acceptable to God. Please look with me at Hebrews 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then look down with me at verse 26. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The first advent, the first coming of Christ, was to establish this new relationship on God's terms and to seal it with His blood. He came to die. So that you and I can live in relationship to God forever. His birth is the gracious gift promised. Scripture goes on to tell us that those who are in Christ are imputed with His righteousness. That means they are accounted as righteous. They don't achieve the perfect standard. You and I cannot achieve the perfect standard. But Christ... Jesus has already achieved that perfect standard. New hearts are given to see Christ as the one who fulfills this new covenant. He is the hope of salvation. He is that promised gift. God says whoever is in Christ is a new creation. They have a new heart. They have a new life. They have been reborn. They have citizenship in God's kingdom. They are heirs of the promise. They belong to God and He is transforming them so that they can be near Him to look upon Him and to feel His warmth and His experience, His grace, to experience His goodness and His mercy. All who confess their sin and trust in Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant are promised salvation. What's written upon their hearts for all who confess in Jesus, who promise, who see the promise in Jesus, there's a new willingness to comply, to embrace, to desire, and to yearn For God, in a close relationship with Him forever, His character will be the focal point of who they are. His holy presence no longer being a frightful presence, like a consuming fire, but now it's a beautiful, gracious, holy, good presence that fills you with great pleasure and joy and peace. 
This is what verse 34 in Jeremiah 31 says. A knowing of God will occur that is more than just an acknowledging of facts about God. It will be a convincing truth that compels His people to commit to having a personal loyalty and love for Him. This promise is for all of God's people. Every member of the covenant family will know the Lord intimately. And Jesus makes it all happen. The promise ends with God forgiving their iniquity and remembering their sins no more. The thing that keeps you from God, your sin, this is for all of us. That thing that separates you from God is now remembered no more in Christ Jesus. God's people will know Him. They will have a personal knowledge of Him. It's a personal relationship. And it grows and it's sustained for all eternity. The promised gift is one that has eternal ramifications. Don't miss the gift of Christmas. When the Son of God came in the flesh, 500 years after the promise in Jeremiah, many people missed it. The announcement of His birth was given to shepherds in the field. Unassuming, often discounted part of society were given the greatest news known to man. And then the magnitude of heavenly hosts sang in front of these shepherds, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Many people in the city missed it. The important, money-seeking, self-improving people of the day missed it. Don't be caught the same way this Christmas. See the promised gift of Jesus. Revealing in the joy, reveling in the joy of Christmas doesn't just happen. You don't just catch it. Just because it's the Christmas season doesn't mean you will automatically, in your heart, be captured by the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be purposeful about it. You have to choose not to dilute yourself in other things. Tomorrow, how will you thank God for Jesus? How will you offer praise for God dealing with your sin in His Son, giving you a new heart to see the reality of what Christmas is, forgiving your iniquity and remembering your sin no more? The promise of salvation is not in what God requires. You and I cannot meet the requirements of God. The promise is what God has provided. Christmas says to us that Jesus alone provides salvation for God's people. For those who confess their sin and trust in Jesus Christ will have all eternity now to enjoy a relationship. And now what we do, how we live, how we spend our time now, it's a result of that promise. 
our commitment now is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that He is the one that fulfills this promise in Jeremiah. Belief that He's given us hearts that know Him, that trust Him and love Him and follow Him anywhere. And from that, the fruit of our salvation is a life of repentance and a life of thankfulness for Jesus Christ. If you remember in Romans 1, I based the whole Advent series on that first couple of verses in Romans 1. In verse 5, it says this, We have received grace, which has brought the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Don't miss the gift of Christmas. This is not just about a holiday. There are many people who will remember Jesus tomorrow on Christmas, and then they'll remember Him again on Easter. But in between, He's forgotten. What do you do in between Christmas and Easter? You see, the essence of the Christian faith is grace. God's grace given to sinful people through the Son of God. The incarnation is God's glorious means to be both the just and the justifier. God accomplishes it all. And through Christ, sinners are forgiven. To be a Christian means to be forgiven. And all who trust in Christ and believe are now cleansed with this new heart that has a new love that goes on and on, not just from holiday to holiday, but for all eternity, a new love. What He has accomplished becomes yours now. You are now able, once you have repented in Christ, to come into God's presence and to bask in His glory and to enjoy peace with a God who is mighty to save. Do you put trust in Christ's accomplishments or do you look to what you do? Maybe you say that you trust in Jesus, but what do you do when you're faced with the unknown? Like the exiles in Jeremiah. Do you turn to the promises of God or do you focus on what you're facing right here and now and deal with what's there yourself? The incarnation means that God is faithful. He can be trusted. So trust Him. Lastly, those of us who have received God's grace have a good news to tell. There's no better news to tell than that Jesus was born so that He would die for sinners. He was offered once, it says, to bear the sins of many. Christmas is the beginning of that fulfillment. How many people in your life need to hear this good news that Jesus fulfills this promise of a new relationship with God? How many of them will you see tomorrow? Many of us will have unsaved family members at dinner or sometime tomorrow. You'll be with people who do not know about God's gift. Don't overlook the opportunity that God is giving you to share the good news that Jesus is this promised gift. This is 
a special time of the year. We Christians, we do have reason to celebrate tomorrow. It is a glorious day to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior. Let me end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher. Now a happy Christmas to you all. It will be a happy Christmas if you have God with you. I shall say nothing today against festivities on this great birthday of Christ. We will tomorrow think of Christ's birthday. We shall be obliged to do it, I am sure, however sturdily we may hold to our rough Puritanism. Feast, Christians, feast. You have a right to feast. Go to the house of feasting tomorrow. Celebrate your Savior's birth. Do not be ashamed to be glad. You have a right to be happy. Solomon says, go your way. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God now accepts your works in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God fulfills his promise. The joy is to the Christian. It's for the Christian. Peace is for the repentant sinner. Hope is for God's people who God saves. And blessing is for all those who receive His grace and trust in His Son. Where Jesus is the mediator of this new relationship that lasts forever and ever. Let's pray.